Man in the chair, how do I sound? Sound good. You know what man in the chair is? I don't think so. So like in all the superhero movies, there's like the guy that's back at headquarters who's the man in the chair, who's like helping the superhero. Ah, gotcha. So in Spider-Man, it's the kid It's the kid he goes to high school with. You know what I mean? And he's like the man in the chair. I, w- I was picturing Inspector Gadget, the guy with the cat. No, that's the, the villain. That's yeah. different. The villain always pets a cat. Every superhero has a man in the chair who's like looking at the computer and telling telling him like, make a left. No, make a right. You know? Right. So. Oh, so you know who's a good man in the chair? Seth Green and the Italian man. Was it Seth Green? Yeah, I think Italian so. Italian man? Italian job. The Ita- <laughs> <laughs> the Ita- no, he was the Italian man in the chair. <laughs> uh, Rick, were you at... Are these my headphones? Yeah. Were you at Impact yesterday? I was not. I was not. So, I was I've never been. It's basically, it's a gun show for financial advisors. There's not actually, it's not actually, there's not actual guns, but it would, and I've never been to a gun show, but it's what I'd imagine a gun show would look like. It's probably gun shows with like logos for the investment firms, I'm sure. Sure. That's quite a metaphor you chose. It's a trade show. (laughs) It's like a gun show. There's no guns and I've never been to a gun show. It's what I would imagine a gun show would be like. You could have done better with the metaphor is all I'm saying. You know what Rick actually was? Can we tell people? uh, Is it on ESPN? Is it the one thing or the other thing? No, ESPN. Oh, you were at the Nuggets game? Dude, Rick was in Mongolia coming in third in an international weightlifting competition. What? Is this a joke? No, uh, powerlifting. Let's beat him up right now. Actually, actually that's, more, that's more like what people that know me would say. Is that a joke? No, no, no. Wait, wait you're a powerlifter? Let's, okay. let's get you closer to the mic. How much? Wait. Closer. Okay. So is, is, is powerlifting and deadlifting, is deadlifting a type of powerlifting? It's, Explain. It's one of, the, one of the lifts in powerlifting. It's squat, bench, and deadlift. Yeah. Squat, bench. All right. How much Can you tell us about how, the- how, how, much, how much do you bench? Uh, so it's, so in our world, it's funny. Like if you ask someone how much they bench, they sort of look at you funny because so much of your total comes from squat and deadlift. Um, the, probably the Stop best. Stop clearing your throat. How much did you bench? Uh, <laughs> about three hundred pounds. Not bad. And you're no. not you're not a big man. I weigh in at one forty five in competition. Holy shit, three hundred pounds. Wait, wait. So. so can you tell us about the comp? Why is it in um, Why is it in Mongolia? And is this the first time you've competed in this? Uh, it's the so life is funny. The okay. world is funny. Lots of stuff changed during COVID. One of them was I was a marathoner. And, but I have two young daughters and I, and one of the markers of longevity risk is bone density. And I'm like, I got to get under a barbell. And so I started training. Oh, like, what do you mean under a barbell? What does that mean? So just start doing bench press, doing anything, right? I was just running and this is pre COVID. Okay. And so, um, then COVID hits, can't do anything for three months. I get a rack in my house. I start training. And then a friend of mine says to me, who's a surgeon, but also happens to be a six foot seven, 290 pound Polish guy who did Highlands games. And he says, wait a second, you do you lift how much? There's gotta be a small and old guy bench press competition you can get into, because that seems like decent weight for a small old guy. And um, and so while I'm laughing, I'm Googling. Um, and then when you Google bench press, you get powerlifting. And it's a it's a long story after that, but finally I said, you know, my legs are always my strongest body part, maybe, but I'd never done a squat or a deadlift in my life. And so I found a guy, um, you know about an hour and a half for me that was a really well-known powerlifter and world champion. And he agreed to take a 50-something-year-old guy who'd never done a squat or a bench, uh, deadlift on to try to teach him. And I don't know, it was just sort of duck and water stuff. I, I won my first U.S. championship. Two, I finished third in U.S. championships a year later. I won my first one two years after that. I won my second the next year wow. in May Team USA. And there, but there are age brackets, right? That's correct. So I compete in what's called M2, which is 50 to 59-year-olds. Um, 
People ask me, you know, they'll, they'll always ask the amounts that you do. So probably the easiest way to do it is we do it in multiple forms. So it trues up across weight classes because not everybody's running around 145 after they diet. So I squat about triple my body weight um, and I deadlift uh, a little over three and a half times my body weight. Wow. For the bench, you're like, like a superhero, literally a superhero. Um, I tell myself that. Every no, because morning. most people are not doing anything triple their body weight. Like that's true. You're like an ant. You're definitely you're like Ant Man. You haven't seen me at an all you can eat buffet, <laughs> but okay, yeah. No, that's right. what, so yeah. Thank you. But I wait, mean, so so for the competition, is it like the number of or is it max weight? It's the max total. So you'll get three attempts at each, right? So basically, it's it's you walk out, you do your first squat, and there are three judges around you. Each one gives you a, a light, white or red. White, it's good. Red, it's not. What are they looking at? Your form? Um, they're looking at technique. They're looking at depth. So squat, you know, you go into a gym, you see guys do a squat and they call that a squat, but they descend about two inches and they stop, come back stop up. Stop following me around, bro. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's just, I, I got rid of the video. Can okay. I show you my so, form? Um, I, no, you know what? Every time don't. somebody asks me that, it doesn't go well. Yeah. So, um, uh, and so they make sure you go, hips have to go below parallel. They make sure you're locking out your knees, all that you're following commands. Actually, the biggest difference between the two is the bench press. Like you see guys in a, in a, in a gym and the bar comes flying down, it bangs off, their body comes yeah. half off and twisting around and it looks like some weird dance on meth. And then you finish the press. In, in a powerlifting competition, you have to pause locked out at the top and then you have to come down to the chest and pause again. So the bar has to stop. And then someone gives you a press command, usually after about two seconds, and then your whole body has to stay flat. Heels have to stay flat. It has to be an actual press into another lockout. So of all three lifts, the one that people see the biggest decline in is the difference between bro pressing and competition bench pressing. But you get three attempts at each. And presumably, if you get the first one, you'll move up the weight on the second attempt and you'll move it up for the third attempt. Your best um, good lift for squat, for bench, and for dead is added together in the total wins. And at the World Championships, they also give medals for each of the individual lifts. And you came in third place? I came in third. Amazing. Yeah. Out, wow. of how, out, out of how many? Um, out, of, out of two. Okay. But, uh, no, no um, come on. There, there were, um, <laughs> in, inside of the, you know, sort of 59, 66, 74, I don't know, if you add all that group sort of together, it's like 20, two dozen people. I mean, because okay. it's hard to get to Worlds. You have to win your national championship. Um, I was going to ask you, where do the, where do the competitors from the other countries come from? What countries are these? Are these like Eastern Europe or it's like everywhere? Scandinavia. There were, there were, there were, that's right. Scandinavia is big. Uh, there were 44 countries yeah. at Masters Worlds. Wow. Um, and, uh, it, it runs the gamut. Um, you know, uh, there's the usuals, there's Great Britain, there's Canada, there's France is great in powerlifting, yeah. Germany. So you have a lot of, you know, Europeans, um, but Japan fields a team. Mongolia had a team. Um, Africa, Libya fielded a really good team this year. So, um, yeah, it's sort of the usual suspects that you would, you would expect to see Eastern Europe. Definitely you compare notes friendly. with the athletes from around the world about how they train for this. Like, is there an understand, is there like a common ground to the sport or not necessarily? Yeah, yeah, there's, that's a great question because there's a few things. One is the common ground is that you're, you're somewhere out in the middle of, you know, wherever you are. Do showing up every day to train. Yeah, that's that's the no matter biggest where, unifying no matter factor. Where you, right? you talk to a guy from yeah. Finland or out in the hinterlands of wherever. Lifting is lifting, and he's lifting, yeah. and he's in his garage. Maybe he set something up, or maybe he's in a really large powerlifting gym, or maybe it's something makeshift. And the biggest thing for me, this being my first worlds, was you know everybody's you know it's a competition. It's pretty tense as it's going on. You're not sitting around you know talking sports yeah. or anything, but as it as it finishes. 
what makes it really interesting is the dialogue you have after. And then, then it's this, it becomes more fraternity like, and everybody's talking about it. Well, the pressure's off. You can, you competed already. And we can just chit chat about what's, it. Right what now. sports did you play growing up to have strong legs? Um, I think, I think I've always kind of had stronger legs, but, um, it wasn't strangely enough. I didn't play anything that should have generated, you know, really strong legs. I, I was a Midwestern kid. So I played everything. I played baseball. I played basketball. I was a short basketball player, played tennis. I ran cross country and track. I mean, if there was anything that was probably the thing I did more than anything, it was, it was track and cross country. Um, and then when I got out, you know, you get out of school, you go to college, you get a job and everything fades away. And it was right around before the, right before the financial crisis, right after when one of my dreams was to do a triathlon and I hadn't run since high school. And so you start training and, and I, I did that. Um, and I had gotten a hamstring injury. This was the first inkling I ever had that I had stronger quads is I went to a sports place on the upper West and these guys work with professional athletes, Olymp you know, Olympians. And, and they said, okay, we're going to do a strength assessment. And we finish up and, and, and he says, okay, so first of all, you have the quad strength of an NFL linebacker. What? Um, it, we know this because we work with, and I'll leave the professional team out. And I, so of course I'm puffed up now. And then the second thing he says is, um, but your hamstring strength is average. And we worked with Olympic sprinters that were blowing out their hamstrings in the 90s, and it was because of an imbalance in strength ratio, or the strength ratio is unbalanced. So it's not surprising that you have a hamstring injury, and that's why you're in seeing us, because you've got a huge imbalance. And I said, okay, well, I can live with that. And they said, but your adductor strength, you have the adductor strength of a five-year-old. What's adductor? Um, it's the, you know, this, this muscle on the inside right over here. Okay. Right, so you pull, and it's, and it's, um, and so abduct, take away, adduct, bring it in. And so your adductors are huge in a lot of powerlifting movements that you do. And, um, and my adductor strength was horrific, you know? Yeah. And so the biggest thing was I had stronger quads from just life, from genetics, I don't know. And then the rest of the stuff was, was bringing up the rear. By the way, just for the listener, we actually are going to be talking about markets today. They're probably like, what the f*** are you guys no, talking about? We're talking about selling barbells. <laughs> this is fascinating to me. And would you do this again? Like, because I know it's not easy to get to Mongolia. And then you have to like, you don't just like walk off the plane like you landed in Vegas. Like you have to like get acclimated to where you are, what you're going to eat, et cetera. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a real haul. It's well, they, the good news is they change locations. It's supposed to rotate continents. So, okay. so next year it's in, in, um, in Africa. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and so in theory, you make your way around and eventually I'll get home court. So, uh, last year it was in Canada. So okay. in theory, I would have been more, you know, but it's tough. It's tough. How long do you have to, how, how long do you have to make the decision if you're going to compete for the next one? Can so, you start training like three months before? No, you train, you train year round. It's just right. the way that your programming works is you start trying to peak, you know, so things start getting more intense. The number of reps shorten, it becomes more single lift specific. So your, your, your central nervous system plays such a big role that you're trying to prime it into the lifting. Okay. Um, and so I know I'm going to do it. So I'm registered for nationals. Well, again, that's my you know, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a hoodie. You probably can't tell that I, I put up 30 pounds with each dumbbell. Yeah. Michael, no, that was clear to me. Michael does the bar. All right, let's get out of the way. It's an important man. Time is money. What show is it, John? Compound and Friends, episode 115. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. 
finds of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Before we begin today's show, let's talk about cash. Some, some people call it fiat, greenbacks, USD. U.S. Treasury yields are currently hitting some of the highest levels in over two decades. However, buying treasuries, at least like on the treasury, it's a huge pain in the butt. Like the government website was built in 1947. That's not true. It's it's not easy. The good news is our sponsor, public.com, their treasury accounts make it super simple to earn a high yield on your cash. It like literally takes 20 seconds. You go to public.com, you easily can purchase a 26 treasury bill. That's that's six months and it automatically will roll over. It's great. No minimum holding periods. You can access your cash at any time with the flexibility of a bank account. Uh, But of course, just... These are annualized yields, and to receive the, the full guaranteed yield, you have to hold until maturity. Go to public.com slash compound to lock in these big, fat, delicious, juicy yields on your cash. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the very best investment podcast in the world. My name is Downtown Josh Brown. Here with my co-host as always, Michael Batnick. Michael, say hello to the folks. Hello, hello. Did you miss pressing those buttons? It's been a couple of weeks. Yeah, I did. All right, John is here. Duncan is here. Nicole is here. Rob is here. Sean is somewhere in the dock. And we have a very special guest today. Very excited to introduce you all to Rick Brink. Rick is a senior vice president and market strategist in the client group at Alliance Bernstein. Alliance Bernstein is an asset management firm with about $690 billion in assets under management. And Rick has the adductors of a five-year-old. Did I, did I, <laughs> I have the adductors of a five-year-old and no buttons, apparently, on my side of the table. All right. I don't want you to be physically intimidated by the strength on this side of the table. Uh, all right. Uh, here's what I want to start. First things first. Alliance Bernstein, not a lot of people know the firm's history. It was two firms that merged. It was Alliance mm-hmm. And it was Bernstein. Bernstein. And I think Bernstein was known as a value investing shop started by San- Sanford Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Okay. And then Alliance was growth and corporate bonds? Yeah, was, that's right. And it okay. was sort of yield hungry, taxable. And then on the Bernstein side with the private wealth, you had more of a, a muni, you know, plain okay. vanilla muni side. Okay. And then they merged in 2000 and the rest is history. And I was in Nashville a couple weeks ago mm. and I saw that big, beautiful glass tower is that occupied yet? Are the AB people there? It is, yeah. And a lot of New Yorkers went down to Nashville to live. They did. To work at Alliance Bernstein. They did. Okay. Not many firms can pull that off because people, especially on Wall Street, are like, well, I'm not leaving my life here. I'll just switch firms. Alliance Bernstein seems to have gotten a lot of people to buy in to move move uh, south. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, I—, I I, I agree with that. I mean, yeah. you know, it, because you're you're making a leap, right? You go to Nashville, it's not like you're running across the street to 25 other financial firms. That's right. If you decide to make a change, so so you're making a you're making a call. Um, if you have kids, you're uprooting your kids. Your, your school decisions. You might as well be Mongolia. Bit. You right. might as well be in Mongolia. Um, and oh, the stories about Mongolia. I, so so yeah, I, I think the biggest thing was the biggest thing, honestly, is trying to port culture. Yeah. Right, you get a brand new building. It's got you know got new building smell. You know yeah. you got it. You're you're dangerously close to Broadway, um, but you have to try to port the culture. And you don't get all of the folks that go down. There are going to be folks that simply can't make that. So then there's the there's the filling and there's the you know sort of bringing people up to speed. So um, I, I was 
pleasantly, I won't say surprised, but it was a really pleasant thing that, that you know, enough people were able to make the move. Um, and so now we effectively, I, uh, you know, when I'm visiting headquarters, I'm here and I'm in Nashville. Okay. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Shout out to Alliance Bernstein. So uh, I want to talk about, I know what you want to talk about. And the good news is we both want to talk about the same thing. I think the biggest story of the fall is what's going on with yields. And I know this is something that you've been writing about, you've been speaking about, people are probably asking you all the time. But just to back up, I think we should start with the GDP report that we got today. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow we're going to get a PCE inflation report. Mm-hmm. Um, give us like the, give us maybe the 30,000 foot view and then we'll, we'll drill down uh, from there. Look, it's just strong. It's strong and strengthening the consumer. Like there's a lot of things you can talk about. You just talk about the headline number. Yeah. Um, and it continues to, it, this whole year, if you think about where we started, hard, you know, hard landing, recession, just think about where that was. The, the Fed's- That was consensus. That was the March Fed number. If yeah. you look at the Fed's median dot and you compare it to September, it quintupled. Yeah. The GDP number quintupled. Yeah. And, right? and, and, and the consensus was for contraction. Yeah. So, and, and, and it was all about, but the thing was- um, you know, it was sort of, this was my issue with it though, is it was hung on the premise that, that high rates cause breaks. Okay. Say right? more. Right. So, well, so what was, what was the, what was the, the economy can't withstand more than 2% interest rates. Yeah. Right. The, so you push right. higher, it pushes through the cost that, you know, then that filters through to consumptive power and then eventually yada, yada, yada. But, but the thing was, it, there wasn't anything actually Cracking. And, and and the indicator that, look, there's a lot of things we can look at, but one of the things that to me is always going to be a big deal is the household paycheck proxy, right? I mean, what what is a recession? If, if they were talking about a recession, what's a recession? Well, first of all, it isn't called for years. That two consecutive quarters to me is a joke. Yeah. So NBER calls it years later, and they have all these things that they look at. But if you get down to the heart of it, the candy-coated center of it all, it's a reduction in consumptive power. Never That's happened. the center of it. Never and happened. So where, where was it? Yeah. So, and the household paycheck proxy, the, way, the reason that I love it is, is that people will look at jobs or they will look at wages. But the thing is, is that what I want to know is I want to know the number of jobs times the average hourly number of hours worked times how much you're paying per hour because we're really looking in aggregate. So it's consumptive power. You get another job, that's consumptive power. You get another 20 minutes on your work week, that's consumptive power. You make 15 cents more an hour, that's consumptive power. And, And we focus on one or the other. We say, hey, wages haven't reached inflation yet. Well, yeah, but how many jobs have we been adding? Okay. What's the aggregate consumptive power of the nation, even if nobody gets a raise, but a gajillion more folks have that same wage? Yeah, you add, you add 300,000 new jobs a month, but the rate of wages for each of those workers is not going up as much as it was. So what? But it's still 300,000 people times yeah. that number of okay. that dollars. They, so actually, they, they work with something called FTEs, full-time equivalents. Because okay. if you get a certain number of cents per hour, that's the equivalent of a full-time worker. You get a certain number of minutes per week, that's a full-time worker. You okay. get an actual job that is legitimately, literally a full-time worker. So the 4.9% real GDP number on an annualized basis that we saw today, I saw somebody tweet that like, that's a, that's $16 trillion. I don't think the number's right, but it's whatever. Uh, that's like roughly equal to the economies of a, li- a list of a dozen countries. I, I mean, I, I mean, so, you know, so we want to talk about how so many people have got this wrong. Uh, 100% of economists saw a recession coming, 100% likelihood of a recession coming. You know who got this pretty damn right? The Atlanta Fed GDP tracker. Mm. Like, credit to them. The numbers that they were coming out with, people were like, what the f- How? Well, 
They were pretty pretty close. Yeah. New, this is the New York Times this week. Um, economists spent 2021 expecting inflation to prove transitory. Didn't happen. They spent much of 2022 underestimating inflation staying power. They spent early 2023 predicting the Federal Reserve's rate increases would plunge the economy into a recession. None of these forecasts have panned out. Uh, and it goes on from there. And, you know, I, I think like we can all look back and diagnose why. Why wasn't it transitory? Like, why wasn't it just base rate effect or, or base effects or mm-hmm. supply chains? Uh, we Like, we can go backwards. But it, but I almost I almost feel like it's a there's a better question to be answered, which is maybe we are just thinking about the whole idea of is it a recession coming or not incorrectly. Maybe from an investing standpoint, it almost should be completely disregarded unless you think there's a huge impact on earnings in a mild recession. Like we should om- almost only be asking ourselves, is a crash likely? Because mm-hmm. you might have had a recession in Silicon Valley last year. If you look at startup valuations, if you look at the tech layoffs, they probably had their own recession in California. Somebody in Oklahoma didn't feel it. It's still recession-like conditions. But so what? Who cares? It doesn't show up in the national statistics. But for the NASDAQ, look, it's a 35% decline in the NASDAQ. It looked like a recession. It felt like a recession. Maybe that's just the way the economy is now. No. If there were if there was a if there was a recession and uh, GDP contracted 3%, there were the, the stock market would be cut in half. A foot, but you need a financial crash for it to my point is we can quibble over statistics. Is it two quarters of uh contracted growth? Uh, is it unemployment at 4.1% instead of four? Like we can do that. Well, what about a better question? I don't know if it helps investors. Does monetary policy not work the way that we think it does or the way that it used to, especially when so much of corporate debt is long-term fixed Mm -hmm. and when, when so many homeowners already locked in a mortgage, like what is the transition transmission mechanism for higher rates impacting? Yeah. We're going to talk about the, the higher credit card rates and, and, uh, uh, rates for small businesses, but they're, they're just, there's a lot of the economy that's insulated from higher rates. Yeah, well, there's a few things. Well, first, I didn't know we were going to talk about religion on this call, uh, but that <laughs> I mean the Fed monetary policy and its effectiveness. Um, but I, I, I mean, so there's a few things. If you don't mind, I'm going to go sort of. Yeah. So one, I was also caught up in the inflation being transitory thing, but I will say this in in defense, maybe because I was in that camp. But um, when it came to inflation, this is all like brand new territory unless somebody had Omicron, Delta, and Russia, Ukraine on their bingo card and tracked that through the inflation that it produced, you know, component by component, that's a tough one to make the call on. I agree. Um, so I- You were I, uh, saying transitory before a European country got invaded. Yeah, and and, right. and and remember, just even the variance and how- they, So I had a, an ace in the hole. So because I live in Colorado now, the, the community I'm in is, is littered with doctors from UC Health. And one of them was an infectious diseases doctor. So during COVID, I had the ace in the hole of being able to talk with this person about what was going on. And, you know, the, the thing about the variance is it, it had ultimately a direct feed-through mechanism to the economy because there was a protocol for what happened if you caught it. Yeah. Right. So, so remember when we made our way all the way to what Omicron and it was the most um, contagious, but the least because it's upper respiratory. So it wouldn't kill you off. Basically, at the that's rate the that one that everyone got right after they got it vaccinated. It was December twenty two, right? Yeah, so yeah, that's right. So so it's not twenty one, twenty one, no, 20, yeah, yeah, twenty one, yeah, yeah. December so, twenty one. So um, December stuck in my head. It's um, but the thing is, 
is that what was the protocol then? Because it wasn't going to kill you, but what was the rule then on COVID if you caught it? You were out of work for two weeks, yeah. right? You sat out for two weeks. So now think of the ripple effects when you have this incredibly contagious virus and when you get it, you're fine. I mean, you're watching ESPN at home, right? Pat McAfee's great, but you're not going in. If you're in, if you're in Asia, you had factories shutting down. Yeah. Right. And so I think it's, you know, you had port, when the port closings, or not port closings, when the ports started getting overrun because they were only built to sustain a certain increase in, in goods coming in, in the, into dock on a year-over-year -year basis, all of a sudden it's overwhelmed because you get a Peloton and you get a Peloton and you yeah, get a Peloton, yeah. right? So I think we weren't just structurally set up for it. So that's what I think that is. And as it rolled through, we just had, and then you throw Russia, Ukraine, and you were like, ding, goods, ding, food and energy, ding, services, right? Yeah. And shelter, of course, is ringing the tote because the, we've got the- The bullwhip effect, people call this. Yeah, it, well, and, it, and it's, but it's almost like whack-a-mole. Yeah. Because no, the, the Russia, Ukraine wasn't related to the, right? It was just like all of a sudden, bing, you know, it's, and so- Food me, prices, natural gas prices, now electricity. Now you get food, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. You got the grain, all that stuff. Even right. now it's going on. We're trying to get, you know, Boats through the, or ships through the through the Black Sea. So that I think I I give, and again, I'm in the camp, so I guess I'm giving myself a pass. But I give a pass because, you know, when's the last time we had a Russian land grab and a once-in-a-century pandemic? And the answer is we haven't, right? Because we were even in the back end of uh, after World War II, uh, One. Right. So that's that one. As far as getting growth wrong, that's the one I take most exception with for the reasons I said earlier. I I I had an issue with that. And I completely agree with the idea though of what is a recession exactly? What defines if a recession is bad? If I, so first of all, if, if the MBER is gonna take four years to tell me it was a recession, then the tree fell in the woods and nobody heard it. Yeah. Right, so the only rule of thumb we have is the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP and people rely on that. But but again, riddle me this, would you prefer negative 0.1 in two consecutive quarters or negative 10 in one? It's a joke. No, it's when people lose right? their jobs. But the problem is that we want in real time, we want the, we want to hear Yes, it's a recession. No, it's not. We don't want to wait for the NBER to wait, weigh in two quarters from now because we want to know everything. That's the nature of the world now. But my point, it's been 500 basis points of rate hikes and the economy is accelerating. Just you wait. So, <laughs> so um, well, Josh was in credit crunch camp in March. I still am. I still am. I think it's just delayed. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I, I, the, the, tr the trick with- And by the way, you were right. <laughs> the inflation was transitory. It just took a long time. Well, stop I will it. point out that transitory just means it. impermanent. It. It's not transitory. You're just moving the goalposts. It's transitorying right now. It <laughs> is transitory. No, no. Impermanent. No. I claim impermanent. Yeah. Okay, um, I like that better. It's. I, I mean, look. Um, so then, as, so as far as as credit, okay, this is probably its own podcast, but credit is still a business. So I, I think there's there's two things that, and this again, this is a whole. I Are you about to, to sell us private credit right now? I, I uh, well, there is. I might, I may or may not have an application right underneath my chair that I, I want to run in. No, look, I, I think we will and should talk about banking credit contraction. Let's talk about it right now. But by the same token, and yes, I do think that there is a, tr a credit transition happening, and, and private credit probably steps into that void. But the the thing I would just to say on this thread though is. I, I don't buy into the idea of recession. I only talk, I only think in terms of some level of reduction in consumptive power. That Whether zen. that triggers a reduction or you, not. You just, you don't, just don't believe in recessions. I, I, don't, I don't believe in how we define it. So what's the point? Yeah. That's like, what, what I, do we do I'm about saying the it? same thing. I'm saying the same thing. If you're an investor and somebody says a recession is coming, my answer is, yeah, no shit. Number one. Number two, if you can't tell me how severe it's going to be, 
or it's not being accompanied by a, a crisis. And how long it lasts. Then I don't really care. And guess what? If it is, and, how, and what's the duration? No, right. Don't you want better? If it is really bad, then the Fed will act immediately. And so paradoxically, you might get, if like, oh my yes. God, the, like like uh, like COVID. The recession is going to be so bad, contraction like we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And then we have the best year in the stock market in a long time. Yeah, well, we've had some, we, we've had some amazing years in the stock market for the last handful of years, and none of it's based on organic growth potential. So, I mean, that's- What do you mean? Well, so, okay, so, um, so let's go back to 2014. So um, we have our, 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 you know, taper tantrum fund in May of 2013. Um, Bernanke comes out and delivers his, you know, every, this guy tried so hard to thread the needle. If you yeah. go back to that speech. Did not work. Right, and in the end, he sounded like the, the, the flight attendant in an airplane, who's like, look, everything's fine, the turbulence, everything's fine, but just out of curiosity, does anybody know how to fly a plane, <laughs> right? And then, True. And then, and then True. Mark, and we didn't. And the market eats itself, right? And then it, then it calms down. And then 2014 to 2016 was a sort of period of tightening. So, yeah. But there was, if you choose one day, and there's a, one day in November 2014, 15, and 16, where the S&P is largely at the same level. So despite the vol, you kind of treaded water for about two years. That day in November 2016, when it hit that number, was the day of the presidential election. Yeah. So what happens after that? We have the expectation and ultimate, ultimate implementation of tax cuts. Okay, that's not organic growth. That's that's net earnings. Then 2019, the Fed pulls a doozy and reverses on its expectations yep. of tightening within three meetings. I'm going to go up. I'm going to stay the same. I'm going to cut. And then they do. 2019, earnings growth was a pittance. Yeah. But the S&P apparently you got a, you was got fine. A yeah, you got a 30% rally in 2019. After that about face by the Fed. 2017, you got a 30% rally. There's a two years where the S&P went up by a third. And both of those were artificial stimulus coming from some source, fiscal and then monetary. I threw up my hands after that and I said, because already already the GFC had the greatest yeah. combination of fiscal monetary of all time, right? And so that goes by and I started talking about this, the new world order, life on the other side of all the stimulus and everything else, right? And then we get the, then we get the 2016, 2019 combination market rips and rolls. And I threw up my hands and I, and I created a new chapter of this presentation. I said, that is it, that is it. There is absolutely no way we can get the fiscal and monetary impulse we're going to need to drive markets higher. It would take something extraordinary. And it's COVID. And it's COVID. Yeah. Right? And then you get the biggest combination punch, fiscal and monetary, of in all time. human history. Since, since the Spaniards went down to South America and yeah. stole all the silver. Right? I mean, that's just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. So it, it, it always has to be a deus ex machina unless you're going to get— Unless we're going to go back to the days of like four or five percent GDP growth being normal, which I don't think we are, um, there's always got to be a trick. Somebody, there's always. Gotta be, by the way, quick Bernanke, because uh, you mentioned him, the most surreal thing I've ever experienced in my life. I'm at MSNBC in 2018. I'm doing like Stephanie Rule's show at six in the morning, and I go into the. They go, just have a seat in the green room. We'll call you when we're ready for you. I swear to God, this is true. I walk in the green room with my coffee. And it's Tim Geithner, <laughs> Ben Bernanke, Paulson, Hank Paulson, all sharing a three-man couch. It's like a Stop. tableau. And I go, wait, I swear to God. Can I take a picture? No, it's all three of them there. And they're in makeup and suits. They're going to do a segment, the 10-year anniversary of the financial crisis, 2018. So I, I turn the corner. I walk in the room. I look. I go, holy fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> And then I asked for a picture, and they all said no. Uh, true story. All right. Here's what I want to— Can what I, I call wanna, you a helicopter? Yes. Here's, uh. what, here's what— Yeah, can I call you a helicopter, Ben? Here's what I want to go with this. 
so the first half of the year, the stock market caught on that we're not in a recession. The last six weeks, the bond market caught on. I thought the bond market's supposed to be the smart money. Yeah. It took it took six months of a realization for the 10-year, 30-year to like wake up and start steepening. Do you see it that way or am I missing something? No, I, I think there's a little bit of, I, I think there's that. I think I think it's a cocktail, Josh, to be honest. Okay. I, there's, there's several things in play here. Um, we sort of describe the the stock side of it as as resolution and uh, and and resistance, and then the more recent chapter is normalization. So resolution was the idea that we had our known unknowns to start the year. Let's remember how that came in. We had you know RB you know regional banking followed by debt ceiling. All that's in the overhang. We get those into the rear view market rips. Yeah. Right? Um, at that point, in my way of thinking, the S and P had had finally gotten to where beyond where I thought it would get the previous summer when I was talking about relative value in the equity market. It's almost like they dissociated. So the equity market made its journey. Yeah. And it, and as far as I'm concerned, that the major part of that journey ended in the summer of this year. July. Um, yeah. In the end, it's about inflation, right? In the end, it's about how you feel inflation's gonna track and bring its, itself down. But then we get all these other sort of stuff. Then we start talking about the fiscal deficit, how it's growing. People start to back away from it. We get the downgrade. There's, there's, we st it's just uh, uh, Japanese yield curve control. Like, um, Foreign sellers of U.S. Treasuries. Uh, and, and no longer owning. And then you have yeah. um, uh, l net long shorts in 10-year Treasuries at the highest in many, many years. It's sort of like double where it was a couple of years ago. So you have several things in there. Um, and we've actually seen that a few times the last couple of years where you have short, you have enough shorts in the treasury and you see the yields popping up and then you get a short cover in the same way. You get a short squeeze in yields the same way you get in the equity market. And then you see the yields come popping down. Who's within doing that? Is that global macro hedge funds? Who's, who's shorting treasuries in real life? Well, Ackman nailed it. Yeah, besides, besides Ackman and people on Twitter. Yeah, well, so you're going to have all kinds of hedge fund managers, momentum-related managers. You're gonna, I mean, you're going to have active managers doing it too. But, but that's a hugely negative carry. They can't keep that trade on for long if it's directionally not working. Like I think, so Ackman supposedly made $200 million, but he spent $100 million in carry to yeah. make that $200 million. So even if you're right, immediately, it's an expensive carry. So it seems to me like that kind of a short squeeze is the most likely outcome when you get that many people uh, shorting treasuries. That's a great point. That's a that's a painful short. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, most a lot of my career in fixed income markets. That's a painful short for somebody to put on. You become you become the payer. Right. So what are we talking about? The Fed has now come out and they've authoritatively they've we double dog cl claim and declare that we are keeping rates higher for, higher longer. for longer. And right. now the market finally capitulates. That's usually where you get a lot of, you know, a lot of nasty in the markets is the markets, the Fed and the markets will disagree a lot. A lot of time the markets are right when it comes to the Fed. They un, they think the Fed's not going to go as much as they say they will. And they're usually right. But when they're wrong and the market has to come around the Fed's way of thinking, that's when it kind of goes ugly, right? And so I, I think the, the Fed has been pushing this narrative for a while because the monster under the bed, and again, this is inflation to me, the monster under the bed is inflation expectations. It's not actually inflation, it's inflation expectations. Inflation expectations are this, this time bomb that's ticking because if I really truly believe that prices are going up, then I'm gonna go buy today and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's the risk of it being entrenched. And so the way Are you that seeing I, that? Huh? Are you seeing that? No, because inflation expectations have stayed anchored. And, and now we see consumer inflation in, in the form of BEIs, and you see consumer inflation expectations coming down apace with real infl with actual inflation. So isn't this good? It's I, I think it's really good. Look so, how excited so, I am. So we I'm not even talking about powerless. So we, have a, we have a strong economy with inflation coming down? 
It's so he, there's a weird, really weird dynamic. Here you go. No, no, go ahead because I'm a, getting warmed up. This is great. There's go ahead. A really, the audience hears from him all the time. Say, say more. Well, no, let me tee it up. Yeah, please. Right, so there's an odd dynamic going on where tell me if you think this is right or wrong. There's. Do you think that that Main Street? I'm sorry that that Wall Street is outperforming Main Street. And where I'm going with this is. I said that there's a lack of trans transmission mechanism for interest rates to hit people. So if you look at the effective interest rate for the S&P 500, because so much of it is long-term fixed, it's, it's below 4%. Mm -hmm. It's nothing. But Torsten Slock put out this chart. There's 33 million small businesses in the United States. What's the effect? And, what's Mike, what's the effective interest this rate? This is, this is what they're paying. So the, so, so the effect the blended interest rate in their debt is well below market levels because again, they borrowed money in 20 and 21. S&P 500, S &P 500 companies. So it's, it's sub 4%. Uh, small businesses of which there are 33 million of them. That's the real economy. Uh, is paying 10% interest rate on short-term loans. So they're very much impacted by that. And then, of course, you have people that are in houses versus people that are out of houses. And there are just the people that are like, it's 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 the the the, the investment-grade bar versus the high-yield bar. John, next next chart, please, the small business one. So do you, do you think that it's fair to say that if you were to describe the economy, you would say, just one word, strong. Oversimplification, this is strong. This is NFIB, actual interest paid on short-term loans. This is like a, a bakery. Yeah, but, but, but if, so if I would describe the economy as strong and I would describe the average consumer as maybe anxious. And do you think that the spread on interest rates and who is it impacting, who is it not, the credit card borrower, the, the, the auto loan borrower, like, would you say that Wall Street is outperforming Main Street? Yeah, well, and, and but I'm going to, I'm going to bifurcate Main Street into lower income earners. Yeah, that's right? a big difference. So, I, I mean, because you're, you're ticking on, say, I heard you said auto loans, you mentioned credit cards, that disproportionately pushes skews from an expense profile that disproportionately it's a bigger skews part of their income. monthly spend and so so and so like auto delinquent so of course it's it's the, the the delinquency that that article is on subprime borrowers the auto loans with subprime borrowers right and so it hits this multi-decade at 6.11 yeah. but lost in the shuffle of that text is is six months earlier it was 5.93 Right, so now we're quibbling over what eighteen basis points. But the thing is, if you get look, if you get really high car prices, used or new, and then you have really cost of financing, and then you have to go get a car because you got to hoof it. To, you don't want to hoof it to work. Okay, you're going to pay a lot. And if you go out on a limb to make that happen because you need that car, it's almost a fait accompli that you're going to see default rates rise because of that. So this is the chart you're talking about. This is subprime, right? Subprime borrowers, so the percentage of total balance that's in 60-day delinquency. And this is, now it's not, it, it's higher than it was in 2019, but only just barely. The, but the thing is, if you look at prime borrowers, nothing, no stress whatsoever. See, that's, that's, there it is, right? So that's what I'm, that's why, that's why I wanted to be really careful here on the income docile that we're talking about. Now, Classically speaking, there is a ripple mechanism, right? It's supposed to make its way through and we can sort of connect the dots till eventually it reaches the middle income person. But right now, who, who's disproportionately impacted by credit card rates pushing up by 50% in a relatively short period of time? Not rich people. Right, not, it's, I mean- They don't have credit card balances. Paying it off in, in full So I wanted month. to ask you about that. The old timers would tell you, would tell me, people that were rich in the 80s, like- Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous came out in like 1983. Like there was a huge boom for wealthy people in the early 80s because they could take no risk and their bank accounts were booming with interest. And that actually fueled the wealth effect that gave up, I would argue, gave us the roaring 80s. Oh, that, that same phenomenon, when you travel internationally right now and you, call, you go, go, want to go to Italy, 
and every five-star resort is booked with Americans, are higher interest rates perversely keeping the expansion going by fueling the top 20% of households and their continued proclivity to spend? Oh, wow. The Fed is not counting on that, but that's what I see with my own two eyes. I'm sure I could find the data that confirms it too. I'm really good at that. But like, I appreciate that. <laughs> but anyone that I talk to, like, I mean, we talk to investors, obviously. It's not, it's not representative of the whole country. These people are spending more, not less. And the Fed seems to be fueling some of that spending because people are making tons of money on cash. It's crazy, but it's true. Yeah. That, okay. So, wow. It's very weird. This, it's very oh, weird. Okay. So, first of all, the 80s. You're triggering me. Um, Fair. That's I, I, the I think 80s. You is, and I are the same generation. I, you might be a little bit older than me. It's. I mean, I, I am an M2 powerlifter. If I haven't Fair mentioned enough. that, on this podcast. not to brag, Fair not to, not to brag, but uh, um, as a powerlifter, you should as, answer all of our questions. Right. That's, look, I, I mean, in the 80s, every our whole world is born. Yeah. Right. It's so 1983 is also the birth of the digital age. Yeah. Um, Deng Xiaoping's four modernization speech, December 79. Here comes China. That. The oldest baby boomer turns 35 in 1981, enters their peak earning years. Yeah. Um, and you have huge female participation in the workforce. And then all of that is married to the 18 to 20 percent Fed funds rate peak from from six foot seven inch Paul Volcker. The next 20 years coming declining. Down. Yeah, yeah. So so you get this massive over that 20 year span from like 81, 82 to right before the tech bubble. The S&P was 18% a year for nearly two decades. Crazy. Bonds were 11% a year. Our whole industry is formed on the back of that. The amount that a financial professional makes versus the rest of the field goes up 12x yeah. in that time, right? It's it's massive. Um, and it sets in play, in play a whole lot of stuff. And you're hitting on some of them. But even here... What are we talking about? Who's paying the interest rate that we're focused on today? The it's people the least Treasury. able to afford it. But, but, but I mean, in terms of re from a return perspective, uh, 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 the it's the U.S. Treasury is paying this. Yeah. So, so if, I mean, this is, that, now this is getting deep, right? Now we, this is. But we're paying it to our, this thing where we owe this much money, we're paying it to ourselves. That's left pocket, right pocket. The, the, the Chinese are not buying treasury bonds. Like, wake up. That's so, that's from a Bill Maher uh, monologue 12 years ago, how the, you know, the Chinese own America. None of that's taking place. We are buying the treasuries. Do I have that wrong? Yeah. So, well, I mean, look, I, what I would say is this, the bigger thing to me is regardless of who's buying it. If I'm thinking about that, eventually our government has to pay it. Yes. Um, it's an obligation. Then, sure. Then I want to focus in on what's the level of real yield, right? So ultimately it's kind of, so if I assume my tax revenues are going to go up by inflation and all that stuff. And so I'm really concerned about the real yield that I have to pay. This is a new phenomenon for the U S government to have to pay meaningfully positive real yields. Um, if, you know, if we sort of stay around, cause right now, 10 year treasury, if you look, look off of BEIs and you're popping around a 5% 10 year treasury, that's about a two and a half real yield. That's what, the inflation is two and a half. Yeah. The, the, okay. Baked into the BEIs over time. Okay. That's the, that's the crazy runaway is that up until look before COVID, most of the developed world in the short end of the curve was paying negative real yields. You can run debt to the moon because in real, because imagine what that means. If, if someone is paying or buying a bond and earning negative real yields in an inflation adjusted space, they are paying a government to rent a lockbox to put their cash in, to keep it safe. Well, so you can run in, any kind of that in Europe for five years. You actually, there's a chart we had that showed um, England lowering its real level of debt as its debt issuance climbed because it was negative real yields that they were you know, paying and therefore receiving. All right. Now it's, now it's not that. Now it's expensive. Now is where the rubber meets the road and the deficit now blows out because it's not, it's not negative real yields anymore. But do federal a finances matter? 
Well, wait a minute. Add to that the cost of living increase that uh, Social Security, the biggest cost of living increase, I think, in history. Is that right? Yeah, Percentage-wise? Yeah. Well, I know it's the one I saw was biggest in decades, but yeah. Biggest okay. since the 70s, probably. Yeah. Okay. But th- these are now real dollars. And I don't know where to go from here other than this is now a topic that many, many people care about for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. So, de- so how me- much debt is too much debt? Is Rick, that let the- me ask you this. So, so federal finances, obviously, we could talk. I, I can't. But people could talk for years. And, and they have and been. Have, decades. And have. About wh- how does it not? I don't know. I don't really know all about that shit. But what I do know is that everything is upside down. Where net interest expense for large corporations is actually going down because their cash piles, they're getting paid more on the cash that they uh, the cash that they have on hand versus the interest expense on the money that they borrowed five years ago. It is in. fucking weird. Uh, even two years ago, COVID, right? Two years Think ago. It, I mean, that's like, like high yield, the high yield market. People talk about you know potential default rates and everything else, but they forget that during COVID, a lot of those guys cycled it back over again. And so you have a pretty small amount that's even coming due in the next two years. Refinance lower, so push maturity down. Interest out. rates go to the moon mm-hmm. and net interest expense for companies goes down. Theoretically, yeah. No, I mean, literally, it, yeah, that's what's I mean, happening. Yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, as they keep taking on new, then it, you know, it rebalances. But that's right. So that's wh- exactly right. So when do these higher interest rates start to impact consumer spending? Like, what would be? Do we? Does there have to be a trigger? Is it just? Pe- is it just time? Is it just people running out of money? No, we're not doing another vacation. But we've been saying this for two years, and I'm not saying that there's no risk. Of course, that is the risk. Uh, it just seems like we've been having this conversation for a long time now. It is, but it's who. Right. So who is it impacting already? So if we were talking about lower income borrowers, if my credit card payment just went up by X amount, that's a problem. There was a Bloomberg article, the one that was talking about that, the one on subprime. It had the, you know, you, you love Bloomberg. They have the article, Nancy is a hairdresser from, you love know, that. such we and such. That. And we she had make, a car. We, we right. talk to the reporters. Yeah. They just make these people up. Um, it's like, <laughs> so, so Nancy had a, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, a slightly used Honda whatever, and it was repossessed. They don't get into detail about why it got repossessed because that probably turns her into a villain. But um, it has been impacting people. It's the who that it's impacting. And the question is actually sort of how does it broaden out? But then that takes me back to it. Okay, so do you think it's going to hurt the auto workers union? Do you think that higher credit card bill is going to hurt the auto workers union? Because there's some other press that relates to Fain and their negotiations with Ford, which is now going to settle. We've got Stellantis. We've got what's happening there. Like, look at the package that Ford is negotiating. That's why I come back to the household paycheck proxy. I remember being at my first nationals in Daytona and we're walking around and there were four fast food joints on every corner and each one was offering a a signing bonus and they were offering 18 bucks an hour just to come and work. So if if you were, let's, so if we're going to compare profiles, we also have to compare the income profiles. Yeah. Right. So where was I five years ago and what was I earning and what am I earning now? And so what is my actual net impact financially? Now, and, and I'm talking about the fast food guy. Yeah. But- so, so yes, I, I'm a subprime borrower. My, my credit card, my credit card, uh, APR just went from 18 to percent of 23. And, um, my next car that I lease is going to be way more expensive than my last lease. However, I'm working more hours than ever. There are 10 million open jobs in this country. I can get a new job with my eyes closed. I can ask for a raise tomorrow. So you're right. The totality of that probably falls on the side of not us not seeing this consumer-driven recession. But also happening. real wages at the lower end are increasing as well. So yeah, yeah, obviously they're being impacted by higher rates, but their real wages are much higher. That's 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 what that's that's what I mean. It's like again, the guy making the fries. 
five years ago makes more. A lot more. Significantly let's more. Do, hey, let's do um let's do your chart on the bond vigilantes. This is interesting to me. Ed Yardani came up with this bond vigilante term like 40 years ago. And the 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 gist of it is like if governments aren't disciplined, eventually the market will discipline them in the form of bond buyers refusing to show up and or selling off their bonds. And this is always like the threat. And we did see it in real life in Europe last decade. Like we saw Greece being unable to sell bonds. And all right, what are, what are we saying here with long-term rates, which are now at 2007, 2006, 2007 levels. And it happened like overnight. And this is a huge story in the market this year yeah. and it's not over. So walk us through what you're showing us in, in this slide and why it matters for investors. Yeah, and, and first, by the way, you know, the bond vigilantes versus now, to your point, if if we say that that time was a story of, you know, fiscal prudence and punishing that, yeah. I, I look at, right now today is less about that and more about a trade. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, you know, so it's kind of a, a different motivation. But I mean, look, the thing here is, you know, up until now, the biggest conversation that happens amongst portfolio constructors is how big is my cash holding, right? How much do I hold in cash? And the reason is because the yields are high and I don't have any risk and why not play around? So my first, my first question for myself actually is, okay, when yields go up 100 basis points on the 10-year within a few months, does that change behavior if now I've, if I've you know, closed the spread and now I'm about 50 bips between you know, your cash and what you can get pushed out the curve and even now, though, if you if you turn on a CNBC or a Bloomberg, there's still a lean into cash because why not? And I can play it safe. And it's overnight. And and, and, and you're not taking the risk duration risk with a six month T bill. And here's here's the thing that that I you know sort of shouting from the rooftops is I think that's a huge mistake. You're saying Go take, on. take duration now and lock it in. Uh, so if you are a market timer of great skill, right? If you like Michael, are, right? Okay. Exactly. If, 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 except for Michael, most of us can't turn around and say, okay, this is where it turns. Yeah. This is where yields start to fall. This is where shorts start getting taken off. This is where money starts to pile in. This is where momentum trades push to the, the long end. Where the Fed starts changing its rhetoric. This, this is, is where is the what, Fed comes yeah, out yeah. and finally admits, well, that's, that's like the whole, I've described the Fed sidebar to my sidebar is I've described the Fed like the Avengers Endgame movie. So, you know, Every time you ask Powell about anything related to cutting or changing the threshold of acceptable inflation, he sort of balks and throws it off and start, keeps talking. Yeah. It's sort of like, to me, um, there's that scene in the second to last of the, the big set of Avenger movies where Iron Man is talking to Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange gives up the time stone. He says, the reason I gave it up is because I looked at 14 million possible scenarios and only one do we win, right? Okay, yeah. fast forward. They're having a big <laughs> battle on the field. Iron Man comes up to Doctor Strange, which seems weird. You'd think he'd be killing bad guys. But he walks up to Dr. Strange. He says, hey, you told us one out of 14 million, we win, yeah? Tell me this is the one. And Dr. Strange looks at Iron Man. And he says, if I tell you what's going to happen, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And to me, the Fed is saying, if I tell you what's going to happen, it's not going to happen. Yeah, because if, totally we, if, agree. if we say we're ready to cut, you guys are going to throw another party in the yeah. stock market. Like, you know, they think we're, we're on the one yard line. Let us finish the job. If we give you any indication that we're going to kneel or whatever, Right. We'll undo everything. They don't want to be a part. I mean, they are. They can't escape it. They don't want to be more of a participant in the behavior of others, especially if it thwarts all of this fiscal tightening that they've already brought about. And frankly, do you want to be the second Fed to theoretically blow it with inflation and go down Nobody history? Want, right? Nobody wants So that. you're going to make an error, right? I mean, so, but the thing is, okay, so fine. So now we get these yields up here really high and we're talking about market timing, whatever. 
Here's the thing about cash. Cash doesn't generate capital gains. Cash doesn't generate capital gains. As yields fall, all you're gonna do is roll into falling yields. Mm. If I have a 10-year treasury and it has an eight-year duration and yields fall by 200 in the next two years, that's 16 plus the five per year. That's 21% in the treasury. But cash feels good. Feel but cash safe. feels safe. Feel it safe. feels good. It feel hugs safe. you at night. Yeah. It's like, but the thing is, cash doesn't pay you capital gains. Right. And so that there's- You will the only ever make the overnight rate in a money market fund. You have no upside on bond, bonds rallying. So you, if you're doing that, Josh, if, you, if you're doing that, you have to believe, you better believe that the base level of rates is gonna hold. Because if it doesn't, that's the dumbest trade in your, in your career. I fight my wife about this is. all the time. Josh is all cash. That's no, I want I want duration. I want to, I want to be right now in seven to ten year treasuries. I can't believe your wife is winning that argument. That is embarrassing. She's like, no offense. She's like, all I know, you idiot, is that you bought these treasury ETFs that so went Josh, down. Josh bought SHY and she's in money market funds, and so she thinks he's an idiot. She's like, <laughs> my thing is the same price every day. All you ever do is lose us money every single day, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. How the great payment, is this? The payments are going up though. <laughs> the payments are going up. She's like, my payments going up too. It's it's like. I can't explain. I can't explain how bonds work to her, and I look worse because of the price action anyway. So I know that right now is the time to add to duration each month. I can't time the Guess market. Guess what? Uh, so the ten years down quite a bit today. Yeah, no shit. I was down quite a bit today. Hey, just just to put a bow on the the, thing, the conversation that we had earlier about so much of the gains accruing, not so much of the gains, that the bottom decile of earners is actually doing really well, despite what the media would, would have, the media, despite what social media might have, you believe. Uh, so this is from the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, real wage growth at the 10th percentile. When was this? I just want to, okay. So in March of this year, real wage growth at the 10th percentile was exceptionally strong, even in the face of high inflation. Between 2019 and 2022, hourly wage growth was strongest at the bottom of the wage distribution, the 10th percentile real hourly wage grew 9% over the three-year period. So is everything perfect? No, of course not. I don't think anybody's suggesting that, but these are the facts. These are the facts. Uh, this is showing the wage gates between the lowest, the lower middle, middle, upper middle, and at the highest end. Now, who cares about the highest end? But it's happening at the lowest end as well. And we could have, rep we could have replicated that chart by using industries and going hospitality and leisure. Yeah. Right. That's where those workers are. And so, so, so that's exactly, that's, that's, I mean, Fry, I like Fry Guy, but you know, it's like, it's the same, it's, it's, that's the idea. And so I keep looking at the household paycheck proxy and yes, you should break it down into deciles, but the consumptive power is strong. Now, um, to, for, I want to shoehorn back into this thing about yields because equities made their run from summer of last year to summer of this year. We talked about that way back when. That comes up a lot. Name the last time that we had really legitimate bond yields that we could get into, and it was leading into the into the GFC, right? I mean, there are people that have gone their whole, I got guys on my team that would have been like in, in, in third grade, second grade, right? The last time that you could take a bite of that apple, right? And so unless we believe, unless you believe that inflation is going to hold at that level, which therefore demands a real yield that has to be commensurate to that level of inflation, then the whole damn thing cracks. And so that's why it keeps coming back to inflation. And, and, and treasury yields are so high that it's not just treasury yields that it's changing the calculus on. 
Okay. It's the same thing for high yield bonds. Yeah. So high yield usually, if you have if you have nine plus percent, nine nine and a half plus percent yields in or eight and a half nine nine and a half anywhere up there. What investment, in high yield investment grade corporates in invest in high yield bonds. High yield. Okay. If you get yields at that level, almost universally historically, and sorry everybody for the finger puppets, but it's because treasury yields are low because something bad has happened and spreads have blown out, and there might be a liquidity premium on top of that. This is the classic profile of eight and a half, nine nine and a half percent high yield yield to worst. It looks like this. Spreads are not blowing out. Spreads are not blowing out. You have more of your more of your yield coming from treasuries. Yeah. Inside of junk bonds. Yeah. It's so, just a thin layer on top. So I was listening to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast with Aswath the Motorin, and he had a great quote. He said, when experts and markets diverge, it's the experts who are usually wrong. And so you could take that back to 100% chance of a recession next year. And if you looked at credit spreads, which are a pretty decent indicator, maybe concurrent, uh, of what's happening in the, in the economy, there's no, there's no stress in the credit market. And, and the thing is, is that, look, this is going to be like the, the Snooty Bond guy, but most people couldn't tell you what a credit spread means, right? So, so you see a, you know, a foreign change handle on a, credit, on a high yield credit spread and you're like, okay, well, that seems really, really low. Well, why does it seem really low? If, if you're feeling particularly spiteful and you sit across the table, you don't explain it, you ask them to explain to you why that's so low. And, and the thing is, is that if you have a foreign change credit spread and you look out over a four-year default window, that suggests over 5% per year defaults. You know how far back you got to go to get an annualized 5-plus percent default rate? You got to go back to the late 90s into the early 2000s. You seem, you seem more confident in the returns in the bond market going forward than in the stock market. Do I have that right? Absolutely, you have it right. Okay, so when people ask you this question, what do I want to overweight or however they ask you, uh, what's the best bet, you know, given the environment, uh, without timing the market, like what what are you what are you giving them in the way of an answer to that You want question? to own the 20 pound. You, that's, that's right. That's right. You, um, you want to, if you're going to give me, I always, look, we live in this world where, you know, you and I were joking about this. There's so many people that that are, you know, in the media and on TV that will talk about, this is what I think oil is going to do by next Tuesday at 3 p.m. All right, so, you, so you're I'm not going to answer that I, question. I, no, no, no. I, I just want to answer it over a longer window if that's cool. Yes. And so um, and so for me, um, I would I would have high yield as an equity D-rate. It'd be part of my equity portfolio. Because we were just joking about this the other day. No, ben, and I were yeah, ben and I were talking about this. So, all right, so here's the thing. In 2017, this entire last cycle, it didn't really make sense to own high yield with with rates at five, absolute rates like 5%. Like, give me, like, come on. High uh, junk bonds at 5%? No, thank you. Then you could say today, well, why do I need to own high yield giving me 9% when I could just hide out in cash giving give me 5.5%? Now, we know why. We just spoke about this. But you could also say, well, why do I need to take equity? Like, why do I need to take equity market risk when I can get 9% in high yield? And even if we do go into a recession, uh, obviously junk bonds do poorly in a recession, right? They, they act, get cut in half they, with they, stocks, they, though. They, they act like stocks more than treasuries do, of course, but at least you've got the 9% to buffer you. Well, and here's, and here's yes, and, and here's an interesting tidbit about high yield that I think is, if people knew this, they would, they'd be far more interested in high yield. I don't care what the starting yield is. I don't care where spreads are. None of it matters. If you go back in history and you take high yield yield to worst at any point in time, going back to the 80s when the index was created, and then you look forward five years to the average annual return in the five years that followed, they're almost a deadlock every single really? time. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I got the chart. I mean, it's like, it's you can do it as consecutive data points. We have, we have one that I had brought along that's like, 
right before the the stuff hits a fan in the financial crisis, right after it takes place. Here's before the. I was going to say, what happens if defaults? What happens if defaults are much higher than than history uh, suggests? Right. So, so here's so this is where it gets into. All right. So let's take. Um, all right. So let's say that starting uh, high yield deal to worst right now. Let's let's round it up to to. To ten, just use like FTX bonds as an example. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just as an example, just random, just random thing. So, um, when you get to yields that are high, the higher the yields are, the more that it's supposed to reflect the default environment that's expected to come. So you're right. What you'd have to run into is a period where the default experience is far greater than you would have expected. But that's what you actually saw right before the global financial crisis. Is that the yield to worst, as I recall, was, I don't know, 7.5%. The forward five-year average annual was 7.5%. Because you need to, it's not enough to get defaults. They have to sustain. And there has to be a driver of it, right? So people, people forget that, you know, in, in 2000, you look at 2008 and 2009, high yields return behavior was the exact opposite of what you would have sort of expected it to be because the market had already priced in defaults before they took place. And yeah. in the year that they took place, the yields were already extraordinary. So you had like 56% returns in 2009 or whatever it was. I know you're not giving investment advice, but in my opinion, I would think about the, if I were to to own junk bonds, that, that would come out of my equity sleeve. I wouldn't be like, that's right. hmm, should I cash or high? Like those are very different no, instruments. No, what, like what if, yeah. that's, what if that's a better risk adjusted barbell, like 30% short-term treasury, shorter term treasuries. And instead of, instead of 70% equities, what if it's like 50% equities and then the remainder oh, we, we were in talking high about, yields? Yeah, we, we were, were talking, talking about this the other day. The other day. So like, what's going to outperform for the next five, 10 years? Obviously, we don't know. But would it be uh, cash and junk bonds or stocks and bonds? Just like a regular 60-40 like my hat suggests. Well, so so first, um, oh, I didn't even see that hat. Ooh. It's no, spicy, right? Um, I, yeah, that's a that's actually a Half the half the conferences I speak at is what do I think the future of sixty forty is? We're gonna hook you. Um, we're gonna hook you up. I know. If, I know you're not. You're not a fan of sixty forty from here, right? But listen, well, equity valuation. I like the hat. I definitely like the hat. Okay. Um, it's look. I I um I think that's an. I want to I want to true up those two comparisons though, right? So you're giving me bonds and stocks in bonds one, but you give me cash right, and high yield in the right, other. Right. Then why don't you give me bonds with the high yield too? Bonds with the high yield. Give me treasuries with high yield. Give me treasuries with equity. That's what I was asking. I'll take it. I'll take B. Of course, I'll take B. So okay. well, let me put it this way. If you, if you look at, at um, firms' forecasts, you know, their 10,000 Monte Carlo simulation, here's what the, the equity S&P is going to average the next 10 years. Almost all of them have something around a five handle. Let's push it from five to seven, right? Okay. What did we just talk about the yield to worst on high yield is? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, unless, and, and by the way, if something breaks enough to cause defaults that are that meaningful, then I shudder to think what your equities are going to do. Yeah. Well, that's my point. You're going to get a, you're going down in both. You're going down less in high yield bonds. Now, if you use those high yield bonds as a replacement for treasuries, you're a schmuck. If you use them as partially an equity substitute, you might have a better risk adjusted return over the next three years. You might have a better absolute return. I might look, have a better absolute return. I mean, return that too. that would be the 60-40 that I would actually use over the next five years 60, would be um, treasuries and high yield. But, if somebody forced me to into a two-asset 60-40. I'd go full freight treasuries and I'd go high yield for that reason. But 10 years ago, the 60-40 was challenged because obviously 10 years ago, we didn't know that the S&P would do 13% a year or whatever it did. We knew what bonds were going to do, 2% or whatever they did. Now, at least we're not so reliant on the stocks to do the heavy lifting. We know we're going to get five-ish, whatever, you know, where you are on the curve in terms of 
credit and, and duration, you know that bonds are going to give you something now. That is the trillion dollar question. So the trillion dollar question is for how long? So right now, if let's let's round to 5% on the 10-year treasury. I agree with you completely. So that's why the up-down of this trade to me is so interesting is because what's the worst case scenario? Presuming the treasury doesn't default. Right. I, I, I mean, that the government doesn't so default. So in terms which, of, in terms of uh, price declines? How, how things happen, right? It's paper, right? right? You, it's like, so I either, I either hold a 5% yielding instrument for 10 years, or given the shape of the curve, I can choose a whole bunch of stuff and get close to that number, right? But let's say I want I want 10 years of 5%. I want to take the insurance policy out that I will get a 5% coupon for 10 years, right? It's not a negative to me. I want to lock it in, right? I think a lot so, of people do. So I, I lock that 5% in. That's how I feel and, right now. And so if, I, if I'm wrong, and there's something in the economy that keeps structural inflation higher that then forces a higher real yield and keeps the 10-year yield that high for that long, okay, nor harm nor foul, I made my 5% for 10 years. And I pretty much tied up or with, with the cash market, give or take. Dude, I put this on LinkedIn yesterday. You would not believe, I had 400 responses. People lost their minds. <laughs> All I said, very innocuously. And you said LinkedIn was the nice place. Welcome back. Well, not not since I got involved there. Now it's now it's a, another toxic waste dump online. So I'm like, I'm like me personally, not advice for anyone else. This is right after the 10-year treasury yield fell back below 5% so yesterday. So I said, I will buy as many 10-year treasury bonds with an above 5% yield as they will sell to me until I run out of money. Me personally. You got to see the responses. It's insanity. He's like, oh, so sell all your stocks? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Oh, so nobody needs to ever take more risk than five? Nope, didn't say that either. People are just like apoplectic about the fact that there is this thing that you can do that's not stocks because we're so used to there, that not existing for so long. And so I'm writing back to people because I'm an idiot. I'm like, dude, I'm a majority shareholder in an RIA. My whole life is tied up in the stock market. No matter what I do, that's going to set my comp forever. So I'm talking about me, not you, not a 20-year-old, not a hypothetical 70-year-old, just me. I don't care if the yield goes to 6%. That's my risk. I miss I miss out. It goes to 6%. Well, stocks are a big ticket item. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, I mean, well, here's- Got plenty we, of stocks. It's fine. How, how, many, how many times has Reddit birthed the bond meme? Yeah, no, right? I, not so gonna happen. It's like, so <laughs> you, it's like, you know, nobody's coming out like a treasury walks into a bar. It's not, I mean, that's not the, the thing that people focus on. It's not the yes. thing they learn. Yes. And so that's why the bond market has always been fertile ground for me because so many people don't study it. Yeah. It's, I mean, look. It, In fairness, there's been nothing to study for 12, that's 12 years. That's completely fair. You know what? That's completely yeah. fair. What, what's the point? What's and the that point? Was, and that's why 60-40 was a problem for me because again, I operate in real yield space. You want to hear something funny though? The 60-40, the 40 was supposed to be the stability. That's well, and, <laughs> Until and, last year. <laughs> but if you look at it, I mean, just look at the chart of over the years, starting back in the 80s, because that's when it takes off, right? 64, yeah. nobody would, go go pre-COVID when when so much of the, of the developed yield curves were negative real yields. Nobody in their right mind would say, I have a portfolio design idea I'd like to bring to you. Let me just flesh this out with you. 40% is going into something with negative ben? real yields. I feel it like does sound bad. like you're doing it's bad. A little keep bit going. Okay, it's, like, it's like I got I got forty percent negative real yields. I think this is going to work out really well for the investor. Right, investor, right? right? right. Of course they wouldn't. You you birth it when you have a, a fifteen handle, fourteen fifteen handle in the trend year treasury. That's where you give birth to two things that can stand side by side return wise. And we how, get there. It should be forty six. Right, so, right? so let so me push back. What, what should have been the forty in two thousand? Let's go back to twenty fifteen. What should have been the forty? Well, 
Because that didn't work out well. Whatever, whatever, whatever it was. Well, so let me let me let me finish this thread, which is, and I'll come back to it. it's the I because that's a whole different thing. Because now I'm getting into <laughs> factors, and that's um, the answer to your, the Pick any of your them. question. Um, first things first is as fang factor when yields come down if you look if you look from the 80s to the 90s go through the tech bubble and all of that stuff and you follow the big downturns and you look at what bonds did alongside stocks you see the declining ability to offset as yields fall it means you don't get the push you get the worst of both worlds either your yields are too low when things are okay or when they're crap the capital gain push from the yield decline is too low because it was too low look at go back and look at covid there was an article about how 60-40 worked in COVID and I wanted to vomit because you have to look at what the bonds did along. The stocks did this. Yeah. The bonds didn't come to the rescue, right? All it right, so, but, so we paid the price. Last year, bonds went down 17%. Stocks went down 18 Yeah, no, no hedge benefit whatsoever, no diversification benefit. So, but like, what could you have done prior, not predicting the pandemic, but if you were worried about bonds having essentially total risk in front of you and very little offset, what would the 60-40 portfolio would have been? But even in hindsight- Even in hindsight, I don't look, know. If, if Rick, just going so back- Maybe it's gold, going like gold? No, yeah. going back to the Ben Carlson thing, uh, in 2015, and I'm not, I'm not like an alt bash or anything, but what alts would have helped a 60-40 portfolio from 2013 through 2022? Yeah, so, so when I talk about an alternate 60-40, they're actually, you can do it without alts because the way that I've talked about it, now COVID's a little weird because- it sort of screwed up a lot of things because of the nature of COVID. But uh, the way that I've talked about it is people tend to think of bonds being on the full end of the counter-cyclical spectrum and stocks live on the far, far side of the pro-cyclical spectrum. But it's not true. There's long duration stocks, there's quality, there's high dip, right? So, so there's this spectrum of reaction. It's a fair overgeneralization. Right? It's a right, fair overgeneralization, yeah. right? Is it, yeah, okay, so these are more pro-cyclical, but there's a reason why one doesn't act like the other every time to the same degree. And so the thing that I've argued for a while is why does, why does U.S. large cap quality persistently versus U.S. large cap stocks, why does it persistently generate down captures that are 15 to 20 points below the equity down market? Why does it persistently get you more of the up market of the S&P 500 versus the down market? That seems like- We were talking about this with Jeremy Grantham. It's just, these are boring stocks that nobody no, wants to own. survivorship bias. No, 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 no. These I, are the stocks that live the longest. No, the, no, it's it's the sector, they're consumer staples, they're boring. I think it's, I think it's both. I think this is, God, we could talk about this forever. It's, um, this, is, this deserves like a pint in a pub. It's, um, is all of this is, I think that counter-cyclical behavior is the thing that's tough to source because forever there's a million risk assets that are pro-cyclical, but you have that one short list of, of high-grade bonds and maybe there were some currencies you could play around in yen, Swiss franc, whatever, right? That's all you had. It's a short list. Gold lived on both lists because it couldn't make up its mind, but that's basically the deal. Yeah. Okay. What if you could frack counter-cyclical behavior out of equities? What frack? If, we're fracking what? A, no, yeah. options. What if What if embedded calls. inside of a factor, what if embedded inside of a quality uh, factor, if you regressed it, what if you were to find that there's counter-cyclical elements inside of that and you could- uh, Are you about to pitch private credit again? No, no. <laughs> this is this Bert, is like quality, like quality Bert is Hath, equity, Bert right? It's, 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 it's what's the driver of why? It doesn't have the same up and down. Why does it persistently generate this behavior? Now, whether or not it's actually a true behavior or people believe it's no, a it behavior. No, it is, it is, it is. Well, so you mentioned something that it's boring. I used to stand in front of audiences. I'd say, okay, you got a buck in the S&P 500. 
you know the market's gonna go down. You can sell the S&P, but you have to buy another equity. What do you buy? And the same list would always come out. Okay, well, I want high dividend yeah. yielding. I want low vol. Uh, pawn shop, pawn cons- shops. I, yeah, of course. No, not a high dividend, yet, stable dividend. It's like, so- um, Stability well, stocks. So sorry, uh, yeah. gr- uh, uh, dividend growth, yeah. right? So, so I want low vol, I want div growth. I want consumer staples more generally. I want quality more broadly. Alcohol. Right, I was sure. I mean, because- Tobacco. I, I became really good at mixology during COVID for the yeah, record when I was just used to be a beer drinker. But- um, I'm still and, dr- I'm still drinking like it's uh, COVID. So <laughs> I'm, I was I was drinking like that before I came in here. So um, no, I'm kidding. Um, so all of that's the go-to that everybody goes to. It's like in case of emergency, break glass, and that's where you see ETF flows and those factors rise. Um, and so whether it's actually true or flows make it so at this point is kind of hard to you know. So you so you're saying rather than accepting bonds yielding zero, a better sixty forty would have been. Just overweight, high quality. More sixty. Would More sixty. It would have been low octane sixty. That's right. It would have been low octane sixty. I feel like I rest my case. And I would have had some high yield bonds in there too, for the record. It would have been more sixty. The key to making that portfolio work is you have to lose your password to where you log in and see. Can we, can, can we talk <laughs> about? Can we talk about the stock market today for a second? I, I made this chart. Uh, so Microsoft gave up all of its gains from the post earnings pop. Um, Apple closed at the lowest levels in a 50% drawdown since uh, since back in May. So S&P was down 1.2% today. Uh, the equal weight was only down 18 basis points. John, throw up Ru- this- Russell rallied throw, today. Throw up this chart that I made. So over the last two days, and it's, it's two f-ing days, who cares? But I do, I do think it's interesting. Uh, the equal weight outperformed the cap weighted over the last two days. The third largest two-day gain from e- of equal weight versus S&P going back to the beginning of 2022. Rick, comment on the last two days of the market. <laughs> I'm just still listening. I mean, it's just <laughs> literally a two-day change. It what? was interesting. Now, okay. look, um, well, so we've had this thread in, in our capital markets outlook for a few quarters now. It's sort of the 10 versus the four. I mean, Magnificent Seven's like a coin term, but we're just sort of doing 10 versus the 490. Um, and we've talked a lot about the equal weighted. If we if we t- if we spread it out beyond two days, um, the the four ninety has woefully underperformed the rest of the guy. It's right? actually so- the biggest gap in history between the uh, the top the top ten stocks versus the other four ni- Like there has never ever been a gap this big. That's that was we we played around with putting something like that in chart form. It was it was so so it's it's sort of starting point and what's being punished. Right. And so it's, it's, it's almost like you want to, I haven't even looked at the market that have been calls to calls to calls, but it's like, if you went in and said, okay, well, who got hammered then? If the equal weighted paid you off today on a relative basis, what got hammered, it's probably going to be the similar suspects, right? That we've been seeing drive back and forth. Yeah. So they becomes, have to give up market cap for those other stocks to go up. And it becomes a univariate story, right? So this is the median forward PE of the top seven versus the rest of the market. And the gap's very, very wide. Oh Yeah. Very, well, very people. So the question people, is rel- so relative value versus relative gap. But, Sh- but people forget that there are multiple no. ways for that to correct. That could correct. It, that could correct through the rest of the market catching up and having like a furious uh, Russell three thousand rally to end the year, where the it's not just the S and P but everything. Or cor- correct the way it's correcting this week. Small caps are like kind of okay, and they're crushing the Fang stocks after great earnings reports. And that's a catch down, but it still represents a closing of that gap. Meanwhile, do you know that the Russell 2000 is at the October 2022 levels? Uh, We're going to end on this. 
let me phrase this right. What's the biggest tail risk in the market? We've got a we've got a graphic here. John, can you get this up? This is so, a hilarious premise. So, so basically, so basically, this thing will change based on whatever the headlines are in the news. This is a joke. What's the biggest surprise that you can never see coming? None of these are surprises, of course. I want to read them for the audience. Uh, EU sovereign debt funding was like uh, back in July of July through October of 2011. Just give people an idea. And then it was U.S. fiscal cliff, and then it was a hard landing in China in 2014 when they were resetting the yuan. Then geopolitical crisis, then another China, then Trump, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. After coronavirus, the next thing was inflation slash hawkish, hawkish central banks. That seemed to have, and this is a survey, uh, Bank of America uh, portfolio manager survey. But this is what they say is the quote unquote biggest but, tail but, risk. But for the last, but over the last ten years. Nothing has been answered as long as inflation, and rightfully so. So let me ask you, see the future for us. What's the biggest terrorist that none of us see coming? Because it's not one of these. That none of you see coming? I mean, it's a joke of a question because obviously mean, that's what a tail risk is. Yeah. No, but what's I, I mean, the big risk out there that you think we're not paying enough attention to if we're so worried about inflation right now? Well, this is the one that always scares me because it's so hard to handicap. Um, it's geopolitical risk. But that's ever-present. Is there one in particular? Well, so it's a cocktail for me now. Mongolia. So, right, so it's Mongolia. I mean, the, po the pollution there is outlandish. Um, it's all of it, right? It's just sort of a brewing cocktail. It doesn't have a, a point where it blows off. I don't know the length of the fuse, like the old cartoon bombs and how you know it's lit, you can hear it, but you don't know how long it is. Right. I don't know that, but I've got, I have Israel, Hamas. I've got Middle East now pushing in. I've got, you know, sort of, Frontier, you know, um, uh, Hezbollah, others are trying to get Russia into and China sort of on the same side they're, of they're this. They're pushing this together. Now there's, we still have Russia, we still have Russia, Ukraine. We, we're looking at South Korea being part of it. We're looking at Iran being part of pushing that. This, this sort of growing kind of an axis. If you're asking me like legitimately what scares me over time, it's that, you know, this isn't like when we were kids, right? When we were kids, it was the 80s, and this was all sort of slowly moving into the back burner. That's what allowed for Top Gun and Rocky and all the other movies. Yeah. This is like the opposite side of it, where the evil empire reforms again. Yeah. Right? And so I- The it, axis is like China, like China, Russia, Iran, Turkey. Right. Like, how do you price that? What do you do? <laughs> but like, but how, but, but let me put it this way. Let me, let me talk about the guys I wouldn't include. Okay. Like, why am I going to worry about, how, what, what is it about inflation I'm scared of right now? You know what the rolling three-month core or headline inflation number was? It was two I'm and I'm so change. glad you said that, but the market is transfixed by this. And whatever the bond yields do on any given day, that basically tells you – you don't even have to look at the stock market. You already know. It's, so we are like caught in this, in this push and pull with the bond market. And by the way, that two and change handle still includes shelter, which is light from a distant star. Like yeah. that's not current pricing. No, they're going off a year ago. So it's, so it's like – that does, does that scare me? Like, can I have right. that list back? Can I? Can we do that? Yeah. <laughs> so the message the message from Rick is worry about geopolitics more than inflation. Well, like that's what you would tell yeah, people. I mean, and we're talking. So are we? We afraid that growth is going to disappear because too many people have jobs and decent way. Right. What's the list? Is there a liquidity crunch that we're afraid of? Is there? Do we have too much leverage in the system? I I, we're not, I don't. You know. I said said that way. It's like, wait, your biggest concern is everyone who wants a job has one. 
And of I'm, course, I'm, it sounds crazy. I'm just trying to go down, like, that's what I was saying. I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm trying to look down the list and say, there's, like, you're talking about recession, yeah. right? There's a slowdown in the economy. There's a worse slowdown in the economy. There's a, something falls through the floor. Is there something on that list that is so Richter scale bad that that's the thing that keeps us awake at night as portfolio constructors? Well, so, so to me, uh, the premise of identifying the biggest tail risk is ludicrous because tail risk is obviously an By unknown. unknown. If I had to, if you had had, to, if I had to say like, what is the biggest risk to the stock market? Not tomorrow, but like a a persistent a risk that might persist is if rates are really higher for longer, and investor preferences continue to migrate towards cash, then there will be a persistent re-rating of stocks lower, mm. of multiples lower. Yeah, I, I when you said tail, so I, I would I sort of take that differently. When I think of tails, I think. Um, what's the thing that's far out on the tail in probability? Because it's usually a probability distribution that gives so, me that tail. A meteor. So, so I'm so like right. So my, no electoral chaos next fall. That's which is tail, part of geopolitical. Yeah, that's why I'm sure. putting that all in the geopolitical bucket because it's like I have a it's a recipe of like twelve different ingredients right now that any one of which could be nothing or they could be something. Well, but so I you're fear there's a lot more. Than you're the other certainly stuff. never going to, going to identify the tail risk. So, uh, you know, obviously the the way to hey, combat that the, is just put together a portfolio that can withstand right tails, which obviously nobody cares about. That's great. Or, or left tails and everything in between. What's yeah, the most and be willing to give up the right tail sure. to defend the left tail. What's the most positive thing about this moment in time for investors from, from all of your experience? What do you think maybe we're underappreciating? Sorry, say, say that. From the, the most positive uh, thing about the current environment. And maybe that's just yeah, I'll, real, I'll, real yields or- I'll answer and you can think about your answer. Starting I'll, valuations. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give you, I'll give you 15 seconds to Wait, think about it. you're going to give his answer? I'm give, no, I'm giving oh, him my answer. answer while he can not be put on the spot. I'm. This is courteous. I'm giving him 20 I seconds to that. formulate an answer. So what? So the question is, what's the, what's the best thing about the market right now? The fact that we can withstand 20% cumulative price increases- and digest 500 basis points of, of increased uh, interest rates. That's a good answer. Absolutely. The economy not falling apart, but more specifically, the stock market hanging in there just fine. Uh, customer, uh, companies figuring out what to do with their costs, what to do with their people. And we're fine. We're muddling along. Is the, is the market in a rip and bull market? Wouldn't you expect it to be? Given where, given the Fed hiking cycle, like, oh, the, it's only the big seven. Who f***ing cares? The market's fine. Yeah. Personally, I think you went first. You could steal my answer, but that we'll, we'll table that. So um, go ahead. I, because that's right. What? Okay, so what's the best thing about the market? That we it are, hasn't died. We, we, are ups, we are bothered. The market is bothered by, good by news. four plus percent GDP yeah, yeah. that we have, you know, incredibly yeah, yeah. low employment, that the market continues to rip, that the Fed has taken rates up and it hasn't broken. It's, we are, and and we find negativity in strength right now. That's the, that's the best thing about the market is we find negativity in strength because what it says to us is, oh my God, the Fed is going to go another four months before they cut. It's yeah. relatively why all we, good, right. right? It's relatively- so why, do we need, why do we need cuts? 5% had been an acceptable uh, treasury yield in past bull markets. And, and if it weakens, what happens to rates? I mean, look, if if you get the weakening that you want and inflation comes down like it looks, then what comes commensurate yeah, Rick, with remember the they was, rates? Remember they were saying like the Fed is out of bullets? Nobody's saying that anymore. The Fed's got 500 bullets uh, in the chamber. Didn't, didn't anybody ever, you know, like look back at Volcker? It's like, that's one of the, the cool things about financial, about, you know, monetary policy history, right? Is the story of William McChesney Martin, uh, who ascends to the head of the Fed back in the 50s, and then he's the longest serving head of the Fed. He gets booted, and part of the 70s inflation was Nixon's choice for Burns. He puts McChesney Martin Jr. out, and he brings Burns in. Part of the thing is, is that. And it continues through, and then you get like Miller, the shortest serving head, the one that didn't come from academia or finance. And then in, inflation keeps rising and in strides Paul Volcker, 
And he's like, oh, you, you don't know how to fix this? Yeah. Oh, I know how to fix this. How's, uh, how's rates at 18 to 20%? I'm going to keep my finger on the button and you stop me when it stops you from spending. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the, because you can only, that's why there's ZERP, but there's no like infinite up, right? There's, we have a ZERP and then we have stuff we can do beyond ZERP to take it, you know, um, um, effectively negative. Right. But we can push rates as high as we need to go. But again, we're, we're looking, so after all of that, if, if the feds and others view is correct for the year, then what we're saying is, is that we're on fire because ultimate GDP this year was 2-1. Yeah. That was on fire? Yeah, that was the emergency. I don't think it's 2-9 over the last year. No, it's, listen, good news is good news. I'm sorry. It's, I mean, good news is, so, but that's, that's why when we talk about tail risks, I'm like, what am I going to give you from that list? It, you know, bond yields are too so we, yeah, high. So we, had, we, had, uh, we had Tom Lee on last week, and he's, you know, been known to be bullish every once in a while. But Tom said, like, most of these negatives have a habit of becoming positives as they reverse. So it's not like there's no bad news or they're all – the negatives do exist, but as they ameliorate – they go from being negative to positive in many cases. Well, Inflation that, being an example of that. That's that's the one I was just going to say, Josh. Yeah. Is, is so let's say that what we believe and others believe is actually accurate and inflation is coming down. That if I take shelter inflation away, that the number's significantly lower. That goods inflation has been actually negative here more that's recently. Right. That's right. Um, that if I take shelter out of services, I mean, there's a reason why now we have Supercore and all this other stuff, right? Because we're, we're trying to separate it and get down to the things that are driving inflation, it. What inflation. if inflation is actually coming down at a reasonable rate? What if shelter does make its way out as anticipated? What if what's baked into the numbers actually plays itself out? Then the question is, what, what, what kind of a market are we talking the about? The risk is to the upside. I knew it. No. On bonds. <laughs> hey, here's On what bonds. kind of market you're talking about. Positive real yields for for risk off capital and treasuries. You got a, a S and P mid caps trading thirteen times earnings. S and P small caps twelve times earnings. Absent a major credit event, what are you so negative about? I like oh, the yeah. setup. Here's my crazy stat. I this is so if the whole Bengen four percent withdrawal rate, right? That many financial advisors yeah, yeah. use, right? Take out four percent inflation adjusted. Okay. Have you ever solved like what's the math required to actually make that work? So, so let's make, put it like in real how space. How much does the portfolio so have to earn? Have to earn like clockwork yeah. to make the math work. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna do this in real space. I'm gonna pretend a world with no inflation, so I don't have to think about it for Fine. a second, right? So it's just four percent a year. I need to earn one point three five percent per year, like clockwork, and the math will work. That I can withdraw for thirty to pull years. Pull out four percent. Right? Yeah. To allow that four percent. Okay. So let's keep that in mind. What did I say the real yield was on a ten-year Treasury right it's now? Two and a half. Financial advisors were tripping over themselves in 2019, trying to figure out how to build a combination portfolio of stocks and bonds that with a high likelihood and the risk of drawdowns that could kill your portfolio because in decumulation, you're spending down impaired assets. How can I trip through that forest and get somebody to the other side? You could right now, right now, put this podcast on pause and run out the door and build a laddered tips portfolio and lock in retirement to work and yeah. make money left over. That's 4% withdrawal rate here, solved. Done. It's already and, over. And, and by the way, uh, no counterparty risk. Nothing. You know, it's, 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 it's a tip. It's inflation adjustment. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to deal with BEIs. It's actual inflation All adjustment. Right. Duncan, we're going to edit this out so that none of our prospective clients hear that uh, because what we do here is extremely intricate and uh, a lot more thoughtful. 
with Jeff on the show today. I had a ton of fun. We had the best time having you here. We end the show every week with something called Favorites, Mm -hmm. where we just basically ask you like what you're reading, what you're listening to, what TV shows you're watching, or what's something that our listeners slash viewers should check out that you've enjoyed. And uh, you could pull this from, you know, anywhere, a book, a movie, whatever you got. Yeah, I, I, you know, because of Mongolia, Mongolia shows up a lot in this, uh, in this, uh, in this talk. Um, not a lot, but I will say that I tend to pile up books. My wife deals with the fact that I find books that I like, and I have gigantic piles. So and never read them, uh, and so I'm going back that's, like that's later big. on, pulling it out, <laughs> yeah. reading it. So um, as I alluded to earlier, I'm sort of obsessed with the way our market took shape as the '70s transitioned into the '80s, and so that period's a big deal for me. And there's a book called A Piece of the Action. A great uh, book. Michael loves that book. Um, I have Joe, Joe Nocera. Joe Nocera, yeah, great book. And and so I've had that sitting in a pile forever. Um, and I finally pulled it out to start reading it because it's it's basically, it, it begins with 1958 and credit cards making their way out, but it's sort of how we democratized capital access, if you will. Yeah. And, and History with of money market funds. Money market stuff, funds, mutual great. funds, credit, credit cards. cards. Yeah. All of that sort of comes out and how that sort of changes the playing field. And now all of a sudden, you know, people are investing. And now, now you get to a level of excess. Now in the book, he actually has a revised forward Mm. Um, where it's written later and he sort of laments sort of post-crisis stuff that went down and how it, it went a little bit too far. Um, but I, I just, I really, I'm a big fan of economic and financial history and I spent a lot of time reading it and that particular period of note. And so that book to me is is a lot of fun to read. A Piece of the Action by Joe Nocera. Mm-hmm. You got a favorite for I've us? I've got a book too. So yesterday I was on the Amtrak down to Philly um, and I didn't realize it's like an hour 15 from the city. What a, what a joy. When you took I took the Acela. I took the Acela home. Huge waste of money. Is it? Why? What's, huge the, waste di- money. what's the difference? I'll tell you right now. So I sat, I sat business class down to Philly, which was $110 worth every penny because the seats are, be- it's great seats and you've got the, rec- the, the reclining mm-hmm. tray table, I guess. Retractable. And, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. it comes all the way into your lap. So it's just very comfortable. The Acela was $210. And you're in a four-seater, which was, I was like, wait, what the uh, hell? That's no good. So my toes were touching this guy's toes. Uh, I get off the train. It was, yeah. aw- dude, you would have, yeah. you would have. No, you know. And you he probably had his, his shoes off. Socks it was off. awful. I would have uh, Ubered the rest so of the So the move is business class on the regular train. But anyhow, uh, so when I got to Philly, I'm like, oh, I'm here already? That's wild. So I was reading. So my friend Morgan Housel has a book coming out, and the book is called Same As same, Ever. Same right? as ever or same, same as, ever. as always? Same as ever. Same a as Guide ever. to What Never Changes. And mo- so Morgan's first book, uh, The Psychology of Money, sold 4 million copies. Mm. It's like— I think it's the biggest selling financial book of the whole generation. Oh, easily. Easily. It's God, a, it could like, be a top 10 of all since time. Since the intelligence investor, I'm guessing. Anyway, so there's a lot of pressure for a second book, right? Like <laughs> everyone knows how Sapiens, uh, what was the second book? Yuval Harari's second book did horribly. Sapiens 2, no. Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> no, it was Homo Deus. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever it was. I didn't read that shit. Anyway, I read the first one. It was a novel. Anyway, anyway, Morgan, same as ever, is so fucking good that I was distraught that I was reading the book. I almost wanted to put the book down because I didn't have a pen. And I wanted to highlight so much of it. And so I texted Morgan, dude, your book is so good. I almost have to put it down because I don't have a pen to mark it up. So pre-order it. Shout the, to Morgan. The book is incredible. Yeah. Same as ever, a guide to what never changes. Gonna have, we got to bring Morgan back on the show too. He's coming out. It's, it's right. such a good book. So I'm very, very I just, happy. I just remembered. It's uh, Sapiens 2, The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> oh, so, in case yeah. You... All right. Uh, I went to The Sphere in Vegas last week. 
Dude, are you a U2 fan? I am. Okay. I, I am. This is my 10th U2 show. I figured it out. And uh, Really? Uh-huh. I, my first U2 show was Joshua Tree. I was 10 years old. I went to pretty much every tour. I took Sprinkles to uh, the Vertigo tour when she was like six months pregnant with my daughter. Like I've been at every major uh, U2, like U2 thing, but I haven't seen them in a long time. And uh, they're like better than ever. But forget about just the band, the spectacle. I This mm. is one of the few things in my life where the hype doesn't do justice to the actual experience. So the sphere you started seeing like on Instagram, like videos starting to come out and you're like, all right, that looks kind of cool. When you're in the middle of that and you feel like the seats are moving and they have got it so that all the pixels on the screen are, it's almost like hypnotic. Wow. And I, I have to tell you, they just added more dates. They're going to run through February. I might be going again. I was just looking at it <laughs> I, last I night. Really, I really think that if you, you don't have to love you too. If you want to be able to say to yourself, when this new technology came along, I was among the first people to go see it. And that's like not important to everyone. But like, this is definitely a breakthrough. All right, well, if we go December, we'll go. I just looked it up. If we go to this event in early December, there's a show on December 6th. We'll All go. right, let's do it. So I wanted to I wanted to shout out uh, my friend Joe Fami took me and what an amazing experience and when they did with or without you Joe and I held hands and can no, I just say one thing the Go whole ahead. audience comes together as like because everyone's looking at each other like holy shit can you believe this like everyone in the building is seeing it for the first time nobody's like over it right and I, that's it I could do this for a long time I saw <laughs> I saw amazing. Billy Joel over the weekend. And where, where I, was he at the sphere? At the yeah, it was oh, at the sphere. The at the and I felt I felt old, uh, and he's old. He's he's old. He's, um, he's sixty nine. He brought. No, he's not. Yeah, turning seventy. Billy Joel. He's older than that. Oh, 70, maybe 74. 74, turning seventy five. So first of all, he has a six or seven year old daughter, which whole other story. But I when he's when River of Dreams came on, like to me, that's still the new song. That's right. That album is from 1993. Well, he and, stopped making music. That's and, why. And I remember when, and I remember at the time being like, I don't like Billy Joel's new stuff. And I was only eight years old at the time, <laughs> but it made me feel old. I, I, uh, so Billy Joel, I saw last time I saw him at the garden. Um, I had seen him before in, uh, with Elton John performing. Um, and he'd sort of disavowed almost his hits. Remember, he was a composer and he did all that stuff. And last time I saw him at the Garden a handful of years ago, he was engaging with the audience. He was back in yeah. it. He was letting pick between songs. And then he'd tell a story about the song. There's nothing quite like Billy Joel at the Garden. But if I may, it's not my favorite concert story of the Garden for me personally. So what uh, is? About, uh, so it's forever ago. Uh, my then girlfriend wanted to get me tickets to see, I'm a big Elton John fan. Okay. Wanted to get me tickets to see Elton John. He was playing one night only at the garden, which true to Elton John was actually like a two or three night thing. But, um, so, but then she's, she's taking me to the garden as we start, you know, you send those escalators and you realize yes. how it's up, going up from Penn up and you, you break the clouds, right. <laughs> yeah. And you're still moving up. And then she explains to me, she says, you know, I wanted to buy them myself, but I had to go to work. I wanted my dad to do it. My dad couldn't get the internet to work. Yeah. And so uh, so I just want you to know it's a thought that counts, right? So we go up, 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 up. So just here, a little trivia point for you. The the last row of the garden is like half seats. 400 section. It's like half seats. Yeah. And we were right in front of that, right? So we're sitting with a few other people that got there early. We got there early. And so at some point, two guys walk in front of us on the little, you know, sort of uh, walking area below, concourse area below. And, and um and they, this couple sitting in front of us, they say, do you guys want to sit on the floor? 
And so they're like, yeah. And they go down and I said, oh, maybe there was a ticket mix up. And so they're trying to make it right. And these two guys that had the half seats behind us are like, no, no, that's something that um, he got from Billy Joel where they keep seats and they give it to yeah. people that are young, hip, when it's going to be either, you know, down, bring them down. Holy. And so, so my girlfriend says, now I'm indignant because this is, this is like, you know, 20, 25 years. I'm like, I'm, I'm young, I'm hip. Yeah. And so um, my girlfriend says, do you want me to go after them? I said, no, I don't want you to go after them. They don't want me. I don't want them. So um, they come back around a little while later and they pass by for a second time, keep walking. Then one of them stops after about 10 feet and he comes back and he points at my girlfriend and I and he says, are you two? And, and we're like, yeah. And he's like, come here. And so my my then girlfriend basically tramples humans yeah, 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 yeah. to get down there, right? Yeah, yeah. And we walk down and he says, yeah, I saw you. There was like six of you in the row. I thought maybe you were all together. Yeah. And so we're walking and talking and, I, and I'm telling him, look, I'm so grateful because I'm a big Elton John fan and this is a birthday gift. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. And we get to the steps to walk down. He's like, well, Rick, happy birthday. Seats one and two front row. Oh on the my God. Right there. Yeah. Was, so, crazy. so Billy does that because he doesn't want to look out from the stage and see the richest people in the building sitting in their chair, not clapping, not being involved in the show. Yeah. So it's actually really smart when you think about it. It probably leads to a better performance from the stage mm -hmm. to have people mm -hmm. that are just grateful to be in the first, first row. Very cool story. Rick, we had the best time with you today. Uh, where can people get more of your insights? They go to alliancebernstein.com. Is there a client? Uh, anything that goes out, how does that, I should probably ask David, but you, you tell me. On the main website, I think the okay. easiest way is uh, there's contacts. There's some series that I lead, but if you go there, it'll probably get you to all that stuff. All right, you're, you've, you've, uh, you've been incredible today. We thank you so much for all your insights, truly. And thank you for making the trip here right after the powerlifting competition. It's quite a one-two punch. You excited to get home? I, I am. I okay. well. I had five days home before I shot myself. Oh, uh, okay. Here, so it was, it was all right. Good. All right. Very cool. Uh, that's been Rick Brink of Alliance Bernstein, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us. Great job this week, Duncan, John, Nicole, the whole media team. We appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. We will see you soon. All right, take us out. So that was the warm up. Just want to try to get the butterflies out a little okay, bit. Okay, good, good. Okay, because <laughs> okay, I, I, I thought I could do it better the second time. <laughs> You're ready. Nah.